The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by Spark Lab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about Spark Lab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. How do we prepare the young for a future that is changing at an increasing pace? It's a truism that people don't just have one career, but it may be that the entire structure of work changes multiple times in the working lives of those at school today. It's a big question, and one today's guest has been grappling with for longer than most. First, as CEO of the Media Design School, a pioneering educator that equipped people at the pointy end of New Zealand's creative industries, and then through founding the Mind Lab and Tech Futures Lab, she has moved the conversations forward by building some of the first courses in these new areas. Frances Valentine has won many awards for her efforts to get society ready for a digital future. Let's list just a few. The High Tech New Zealand Flying Kiwi Award, the Westpac Woman of Influence for Innovation, and in the New Year's Honours, Frances was appointed a companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit. But before the recognition, came a lot of work to help get 150,000 kids and thousands of teachers equipped with the skills to think, learn and adapt in this changing world. To talk the skills we need, the journey and what's next, Frances Valentine joins us now. G'day, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, kia ora. Kia ora. Um, Tell us, I've seen it described, um, you've said that you had a zigzag career, um, photography, fashion, government before getting into the education space. Tell me about that idea of a zigzag career. Look, I I grew up in a small town, and I I don't know that I had great aspirations beyond living in a small town. And I had the chance to come to Auckland as a teenager, and and I got really curious. And so I found myself dabbling in lots of different things. But the heart of it, I was a creative, and I was really interested in where things were going in photography and fashion. And I felt that that was where it was going to go. And I headed off at 17 to London to sort of explore where that might take me. And in photography, how, how did you land in London? Being in <laughs> London in photography sounds like a terribly glamorous thing after growing up in um, a small New Zealand town. Yeah, look, it was um, really a, a real passion for photography. And then I sort of landed on my feet and I, I, I funnily enough, uh, it wasn't nearly as glamorous as it sounds. I ended up basically developing photos initially and then getting to go out on the job. And But it was in really sort of out of the way places and spending hours on trains trying to get to where I was going. And 
But it did take me actually eventually to Turkey, and I lived in Turkey for quite some time, uh, combined those two passions. What were you doing in Turkey? <laughs> Mostly around fashion. So I actually worked for a fashion company. And then the first Gulf War broke out, and I got a knock at the door from the British consulate, uh, who was sort of representing New Zealand, and said, it's time for you to leave. So this is uh, probably in 19... Oh no, it must have been... Two th- oh, no, gosh. Gosh. <laughs> Man, well, maybe 1991. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Wow. And that must have been quite early on in the kind of internationalisation of um, fast fashion or, or fashion into those um, kind of uh, areas just on the edges of Europe. Yeah, it was. And actually, the manufacturing at the time was with this Turkish company for the European fashion houses. So we were running big fashion events uh, and sort of luxury resorts for um, the Europeans would come in for the holidays and, and for their summer. And so it gave me a, a really interesting introduction to this big world outside of where I'd grown up. And it certainly is a long, long way from education and technology where I am now. So um, it was really just one of those very organic things that happened. And then it was probably more the journey home because of the Gulf War that probably took me in a different direction. So, so you got brought back to New, New Zealand, said this isn't a very good place to be at the moment, and then you still had that international outlook. And what, what did you do with the government? Well, so then I um, looked basically for a job that would take me back to Europe because I wasn't really ready to come home. And uh, the very beginning stages of international education for New Zealand was being thought about. And so um, my task was to go off and find and develop markets for international students. So I headed off first off to Germany and and then into Southeast Asia. And I just started hearing the stories of these international students who were looking at New Zealand as a destination. And I thought, this is quite fascinating. And you know, got to know them pretty well and realised the impact that education had on many people to transfer or to transform lives. And this is coming from someone who had basically had finished uh, sixth form got UE and decided to go overseas. So it was not really a world that I was very familiar with, um, but certainly got very excited about the potential of education. And international kind of receipts for education are a huge export earner and have been over the last kind of 20 years, haven't they? And was that kind of um, helping to build the start of that industry? Actually, the, the first uh, million dollars of foreign exchange earnings, I was I had a function held for me and Helen Clark gave me an award. I still have a frame certificate somewhere which says they're the first million dollars of foreign exchange from international students, which were students that were brought into the country, um, mostly from uh, Southeast Asia, but the few Europeans. And in fact, in the early days of international education, it was much, much more diverse. Mm-hmm. There were, you know, right across the... Uh, the Americas, throughout Europe, you know, literally South America, we had students coming from everywhere because the marketing wasn't developed. So these were free, independent uh, students who were just looking for a different experience. It's quite a different market today. Yeah, and a huge market. And a massive market. Yeah, absolutely. And so having kind of like just through being entrepreneurial, hardworking, up for a challenge, I imagine, having found yourself and worked yourself into all of these different roles... Did you then come through kind of like a, having a different experience to kind of the power of education to get people into new places? Yeah, I think the combination of a common theme with me was uh, technology. You know, I was always the one who was like testing, trialing, curious about how things worked. And so even though I was sitting mostly in the creative sector, I was really fascinated by how technology um, could inform. And, and so I was hungry to understand how that might change the world. And then this education piece was more about the conversations I'd had with people about their aspirations and how the ticket to change was education. But I got, very early on, I really got to see 
that the aspirations were often misaligned with the careers I could see coming through, that I could start to imagine new industries, because I was seeing them when I was traveling, and I was traveling a lot. And so I was spending a lot of time saying, wow, these are amazing emerging industries, and how come when I come back to New Zealand, we're not talking about them? And a case in point was at Media Design School, which was formed in 98. Um, And so I was there from the beginning, and I was thinking, you know, there's a whole industry coming out through visual effects and animation and the film industry, which looks nothing like the analog film industry we once knew. And this was at a time in 98 where people were still using floppy disks and zip disks and bromides for logos, and we were only just starting to move into things like CD-ROMs. But I could suddenly uh, see that there was this big gap between what we needed to know and what we did know as a country, and, and really got the bug and jumped pretty much full, full, kind of full force into education from that point on. And, and with the Media Design School, Correct, so as, yeah. as, as CEO of that institution. So I was, yeah, I was at Media Design School right through till 2013. Yeah, yeah, and that's such an interesting kind of space to be in, where it's kind of almost the um, vocational approach to creative industries, you know, like kind of getting in there and getting actual, useful, uh, immediately applicable workforce skills in, in a place where maybe people had gone and done a BA in order mm-hmm. to prove that they could kind of suck eggs but wouldn't come out with that many uh, practical skills. Yeah, and look, back then there was no funding the way there is for private schools, you know, the, what we call PTEs today. So students were paying really high fees because there was no subsidy from the government. So I think going back in perhaps the first couple of years, students were paying around $20,000 for a year-long intense sort of boot camp in something like animation or visual effects or uh, in fact, what we called the first program was New Media because we had no name for it. It was sort of multimedia CD-ROM productions and in the very beginning of websites. And so, and what we found is the people who were jumping into these programs were, you know, generally between thirty and forty, and they'd come from a traditional design background. So they were, you know, painting and doing illustrations, and suddenly this world was changing. Everything was becoming digitized, and the first of the really kind of high-spec Macs were coming onto the market and people could start to imagine this world where technology would influence design and vice versa, uh, not just this sort of the craft of a designer. Yeah, and, and we've actually had, I'm just looking up the name, or, um, the, the name of the game studio that we had because we had um, Mahu Nihoniho who oh, came fantastic. on. And, yeah. So that's so cool that, you know, you've had these people that have been on the show who... Um, uh, they they had she her story was which you'd know well of course she had a career in hospitality and then thought oh I'd love to um, expand this creative frontier around video games that I love and now she's running this remarkably successful um, studio media interactive yeah, yeah. And, and look Maru and I were actually on the the New Zealand Game Developers um, Association board for quite a few years together and recently even more amazing we we you know we became great friends over the years but she has just completed a Master of Technological Futures at Tech Futures at my work. Mm. So she has gone from another great story where she never got qualified. Um, so she is, is qualified like me. You know, She basically, in her 40s, decided that education was the time to validate all the experience and knowledge that, that she had. And, and look, she's an incredible role model for so many. And that must be such a cool thing to um, have created this place where people who did have um, maybe experience like the artists who were wanting to to quantify it uh, with, with some kind of um, qualification or people who maybe had like a dream but hadn't pursued it and then got to a stage where yeah. they wanted to jump over. Yeah, and look, I I look back so fondly in those those years at Media Design School where you know, literally thousands of, 
of people jumped across from analog to digital and became the kind of the, the real grunt of the film industry and certainly the game industry. There was no qualifications at all in game programming and game art in the early days before we got involved and started teaching that. But even looking at the visual effects and the idea of very specialist roles within the industry that we were able to create you know, amazing talent for. And now some of these people are heading up incredibly large studios globally. And, you know, I have this, uh, I sort of have this, uh, almost these moments occasionally I look at LinkedIn and I look at these people who I knew, who I trained, you know, 20 years ago and I look at what they're doing now and I'm like, wow, this is just amazing to think the journeys these people have gone on since I last saw them. And th- that's so cool, like that, you know, to, to create that thing that allows people to get skills basically that were missing out of the, um, the system up until then. But at what point did you go, well, maybe it would be more useful if we got these skills into people as they were learning in school and in a young age? Yeah, I think the, the idea of the Mind Lab came about, um, I always have my, my, my biggest ideas when I'm travelling, and it's when I probably give myself permission to think. I sit on a plane for a number of hours and I sort of t- turn off all of my technology and start thinking about things. And at the time, my, my children were reasonably young, and I kept thinking, where in their schooling will they ever get exposed to the new ideas and and actually be more informed by the connections that technology brings. You know, why aren't they bringing experts into the classroom glo- you know, globally, but also why aren't they connecting with peers around the world and, and exploring and investigating things differently instead of just going back to the textbooks in the library? And so I think it was partially frustration and partially a curiosity about what would, what would it be like to teach children, given my entire experience had been around, you know, for up to that point, 14 years of teaching adults. Um, and so the mine had formed in 2013, and it was really, uh, if I'm really honest, it was a time where I thought, if I can have a job where I can still be in education around technology, but I don't have to travel, because I was spending up to two weeks a month on a plane, or certainly over, overseas, and I felt that it would be great if I could just be at home for a while and, and, and um, be closer to around my family. And, and actually... From that point of view, it panned out really well, but I didn't realise it was like a Pandora's box. I opened up um, the first lab in in Newmarket, the idea of just teaching children, and then almost immediately we had all these teachers saying, hang on, this is amazing, we love that you're teaching our kids robotics and you teach them how to code and they're doing great animations, but what about us? Like, what are we going to do? And so at that point in time I went, okay, this is clearly the next stage of my career. This is the new zig of my zag, and I, you know, I, I want to get involved again with adults as well as teaching kids. I really want to make sure the teachers of New Zealand have the chance to really have that professional development they need to be confident and, um, and really inspirational teachers in the digital world, you know, the 21st century learning as we started to call it. And so did that lead to um, the, the Tech Futures Lab to be able to do that? Like, so, so the Mind Lab was very much originally built for... Uh, equipping children with the new skills, and maybe just before we jump into the adult bit, like what what are those skills like? And so I'm, I'm not so much in terms of you know what are the actual kind of mechanics of it, but what what are the skills kids need to learn to to, to know how to learn and be open to what's new and what's next. So I I actually took a, a very different approach perhaps than a traditional teacher would, and I said actually what's the problem we're trying to solve, and so we created an environment in the lab and all the teachers I hired were saying there is no workbooks, there is no, you know, there's not an overhead, there's not a 
a, you know, a, a screen anywhere that's going to tell kids how to do these things. They're going to literally get a problem and then we want them to collaborate and to figure it out. And there'll be many solutions, some will work better than others. And so it was really about that idea of curiosity and ex exploration, but also accepting that it doesn't have to be perfectly right the first time, that you can be agile and you can pivot and, you know, bring in all these sort of uh, you know, almost cliche terms now, which is how do you, how do you kind of just test through iteration and then collaboration to go and look what others are doing and why are they, why is theirs working and ours is not working? So we were teaching the schools around things like robotics and and how you could utilize um, computation to do great things, you know, whether it be making a website or a computer game. But actually, fundamentally, we were, were trying to, to really engage their curiosity about different ways of thinking. And, and actually, the MyLab itself, while we started off with teaching children and we opened a number of labs around the country, the, the de decision to teach teachers became actually even bigger uh, part of our organization under the MyLab very quickly. So the children's part in numbers, we were teaching 40,000 children a year, but suddenly there was this, how do we teach a massive number of teachers who, in New Zealand, uh, the average teacher is 55 and female. And so if you think about the last time they may have had formal training and, and potentially no digital technology training at all, it was like, how do we do that so we don't become this Auckland-centric sort of city school? And so I had to rethink tertiary education completely. And, um, and probably if there was one single thing in my life that I'm most proud of, it is uh, the fact that now we've got over 4,000 teachers from Kaitaia in the north to Invercargill in the south studying at postgraduate level. It's the largest postgraduate program in New Zealand's history. And here we are in town by town every week teaching a bunch of you know, 25 teachers in a classroom in 25 locations every week of, the, of every, you know, every week for the last four years. Uh, and we just have had this incredible transformation in the education system, mostly around these teachers going, "Ah, I now get it. It's not about you know, it's not about the app. It's not about using technology. It's about actually what does technology do to enhance learning, to connect learners? But more importantly, to actually give them the ability to kind of be more inquisitive. And, and so that has, that has been a really massive transformation. And it's still folding out now. And, you know, we have another intake of, you know, close to 500 teachers starting just this week in another 25 locations. And these sometimes are in tiny little towns that you would never imagine that you could take a tertiary program face-to-face, -face, not online, right into these small country towns. And I love it. That's so cool. And I wonder if, like, um, uh, having worked a bit in um, tech companies where the primary users were often kind of um, late 40s women as well, uh, and there was this kind of, like, um, a thing that we've discovered through our research that a lot of these users didn't feel um, like digital natives, didn't feel confident, didn't feel it was for them, and so kind, of, kind of came to the technology with a series of kind of challenges they almost made for themselves, like they wouldn't be able to work it out. And yeah, like the actual ability to make people know that like it is for them and that they do have confidence, that must be so important for the kids to see their teachers feeling confident and feeling in control and feeling like, um, yeah, like it's theirs to teach. Yeah, I get these amazing emails and sometimes videos back at the end of programs where you've got teachers who, who will acknowledge they came into the program probably dragged along by their, their colleagues because there's a group of them doing it together. Um, sort of they're the arms crossed, 
adamant, staunch, like this is not for me. You're you know, proud, that's proud Luddites. Uh, completely proud of it, but also, you know, terrified underneath it all. And they often are the ones where you see the most uh, significant transformation. And fundamentally it comes down to, in a classroom today, the teacher plays a role of a facilitator more than anything else. They are the ones curating a classroom and enabling students to look at their own skill sets and to form little groups together and to find solutions. And so this idea where you had to have a lesson plan and you stood at the front of the class and you had to know all this information and then the students would learn it through either rote learning and copying it down or you know reading a book and, and assessing, it's completely gone. And our primary schools are completely transformed. If you go into them now, you'll see an entirely different world than the primary school that you went to and certainly what I went to. We haven't quite got there yet with all our high schools. We're still very much teaching to the assessment. And so that is going to be, I think, our detriment. And it's going to be this transitional period right now where I think we're doing a disservice for our students, that we are, are still gearing them up on a basis of if you learn this information and you can re remember and regurgitate it at the exam, that therefore you are a learnt student. It, the whole thing makes no sense. When I'm hiring someone, what I want to know is you know, how quickly can they find a solution? How can they figure out how to, how to work out, how to, to do something differently? How do they validate it works? How do they know the information they got is, is reliable? Mm. So there's, there's a whole lot of skills that I want. And certainly, most importantly, I want them to be independent thinkers. And none of that comes from sitting and passing an exam. And so there's been quite a shift in recent times away from this idea of you know, what does an exam really measure and why does it assume that if you are 17 years old that everybody else who's 17 should know the same stuff as you at the same time? What if you're 12 and you know that stuff? Or what if it takes you to 22 to get your head around that? Or, or what if the way you, you're taught doesn't make sense at all because of the way you process information? And if you could go and find a different way of learning that same information, which might be online. You know, we need to build much more flex into the education system so that we don't just reward those who are academic and those who have got the ability to memorise information which is, you know, for the most part, that's the minority, not the majority of people. And there are initiatives like yours and initiatives with online learning, and um, uh, there are certainly moves um, in some of the kind of um, edges of NCEA that maybe have a lot of traditional parents concerned um, to try and get this in. And I wonder if, like, if parents maybe a, a lot of the security that they get out of grades and um, regimented learning... Uh, is that, you know, at least they've got something they can measure because that all sounds um, less measurable on a kind of objective stand to the side and know whether um, young Sally had put in as much work as she should this year. How do you, how do you go about kind of helping parents get through that? Yeah, look, my, my biggest challenge is parents. Yeah. And, and actually the parents who did well through education, so if it served them well and perhaps they're sitting there in a, a job that they trained for, they went to university for, they're now doing well, they've got... You know, they're at sort of the top of their um, top of what they hope to achieve. They're actually are much more likely to be resistant to change and saying, "Well, what's wrong? You know, it served me perfectly well." I see uh, a very different conversation, or have a very different conversation with parents who perhaps education did not serve them well. Either they dropped out, or didn't have the kind of didn't make the lights go on the way that maybe they wanted to, and they felt that they have never reached their full potential or they're not recognised because they haven't had the success of having a list of exams they've passed on a piece of paper. Mm. 
And so those people are often very open to change and saying, look, please make sure my kids are ready for the new world, that they actually are looking at the era that they live in and they're looking at their future. So that, that what I really do is uh, come back to those parents who are adamant that there's nothing wrong with the current system and just talk about what are the features of this education system that you think are so important. Like what is the, being able to measure your child and compare to another one, what purpose does that actually serve? You know, have you imagined going into a job and having the same thing, you know, tested on you and just sort of saying, well, like, I want you to tell me exactly who you are on this list of attributes and you just need a checklist and if you pass it all, we'll, we'll take you on. I mean, the world doesn't operate in hard measures like that and we're all about people. And so it often it takes quite a lot of conversation with them to, to get beyond this idea that the measure of a person comes in a, in a test grade. Once they get beyond that and they start to think about the way they they hire people themselves or the colleagues they work with or the ones they respond to or the people they see being promoted or those, you know, particularly around um, people who are often highly creative and entrepreneurial, you know, often don't have those great test scores and yet go on in life to be remarkable people. And there's, you know, there's so much evidence of some of the most remarkable people in the world are not necessarily great academic students. And this isn't to um, say that... Uh academia is something not to um, engage with either because you have gone back as well. Uh, there's kind of two sides to what you've done recently as well, isn't there, in that um, this really interesting initiative, the No Degree, No Problem, that you are one of the um, the really strong voices in, um, saying, look, you don't need a degree to be taken seriously, but also um, a- a- after um, finding success without a degree, you went and did some higher education um Tell me about those kind of both yeah, those and ideas. Look, and I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm definitely not saying they're contradictory well, ideas they are at slightly, all. They are slightly contradictory, but you need to understand the place where I come from in terms of uh, higher education definitely has a place. There are some areas where there are skills you absolutely need to have. Um, if, you know, if you want to have somebody who's representing you in a, a legal court, you definitely want to make sure that they know what they're doing. Yeah. Likewise, a doctor or an engineer. There's, I think my, my the viewpoint of the uh, no qualifications, no problem, actually was supported now by 220 New Zealand companies. And they make up the majority of employees in this country. So certainly they are a hugely influential group. Many of those companies have got more than 5,000 people. The initiative was to say many or majority, if not all jobs, have a requirement of saying must have, insert here, whatever degree. Mm. So this degree or it might, you know, whatever it might be, this particular qualification to apply. When we went out to them, and this was an initiative supported by um, and backed by ASB and KPMG, we asked the question, once they had put the advertisement, did they then use that qualification as the first criteria for selecting people? And everyone said, well, no, not at all. And I said, well, is it the second or third? And basically it came down to it was almost irrelevant. It was because they'd always done it that way, they continued to put this qualification. And we said, so when you hire people, if you go back, how often is their degree directly aligned to what you're looking for? And we found, actually, in most cases, the degree was either irrelevant or it was such an, a degree that was for such a long time ago, it was no longer relevant anyhow. And then we talked about people with transferable skills. So if perhaps you'd been working in, in a bank as a traditional bank teller, you've got a whole lot of transferable skills which would work in project management or you might work in other financial roles. But people were not applying because they saw this qualifications required. And in the tech sector, particularly where you've got a lot of very capable youth who are self-taught, who are doing amazing things, they want to work at a great New Zealand tech company and then they see a qualifications required and they're like, 
but why would I need that when I already know what I'm doing? And so that initiative was about really just saying, do you need that barrier put there at a time when we've got a really a, a massive issue around talent? We've got nowhere near enough talent in this country. <clears throat> and so it was really a case of saying, let's remove that barrier and then clearly if you need it for, you know, for particular reasons for your profession and things, that's, we understand, but let's not put that up, up front. And the other thing for me particularly, which was my personal driver, is what we do know is that females will use a list of requirements for a job, and if they don't tick all of them, they won't apply. And so they'll say, well, if there's 10 things you need, they'll, they'll, they'll go, oh, look, I can only do eight of those, I won't apply. And so by putting one more barrier meant that a lot of women were not necessarily taking on you know, leadership roles or putting themselves forward because they were like, I bet there's a man who could do that with all the, tick all the boxes. So we wanted to remove that um, that barrier as well, and that's proven to be really successful. Mm. And and it's encouraging others to think, do I really need to do the qualification now, or is this something I could go and work for a few years, figure out where I am end up, and then go and study? And, and certainly I'm, I'm a very big supporter of that, saying you know, there shouldn't be this idea that education has to be entirely front-loaded into your life. It should be something that is it's almost a sabbatical, taking out every five years, going and doing some study on a regular basis to stay relevant, relevant, but also to stay really interested in learning. And I think that it's a big shift from this idea of go through school, get, you know, get university entrance, go and do your three years, and now increasingly people staying on to their masters. It's a big block to actually then rely on for the rest of your life. And after maybe 12 years in a row, maybe you don't want to go back for a very long time when a lot of the benefit, of course, of any kind of study is... Um, the networks you gain and the people who are also interested in the same things and the exposure to new ideas, and you don't want any of that to stop. Yeah, and I think what also the argument comes up, people saying, oh, but education and tertiary education particularly after high school is a great way to socialise and to develop ideas and friendships. Well, you know what? That happens in the workplace as well. You know, I, I look around my workplace and it is an incredibly vibrant social environment and half my staff are under 30, so it's about 50 under 30-year-olds and at 50 over 30 and I look around and think, you know, this, it's not a case of it only, this only happens in an education environment. You know, a good workplace is incredibly social and lots of really strong friendships and organisations and clubs form and sports teams form and all the things that happen inside tertiary as well. So I think that we have to get beyond this idea that that only happens in a sort of a particular uh, scenario. So now with the MindLab offering um, a series of courses in these new skills and ways of learning for children and uh, for teachers and Tech Futures Lab, providing uh, tertiary qualifications for people wanting to come back and train and, and or you, you know uh, follow education in that way. Well, what's what's next? What what's next? Where do you um, where do you next want to make an impact in the way that um, this country is learning about learning? Yeah. Okay. So Tech Futures Lab opened a couple of years ago, and that was really focused on people mid career uh, executives and and boards and saying. Look, if you look around you, the, the rate of change in exponential technologies, the impact it's going to have on our businesses, new business models, the changing demographics, the expectations of Generation um, Z, particularly those under 19, but also millennials about what they value, are very, very different. Um, they're going to expect in terms of sustainability and environmental and fairness and equity and equality, all those things are going to be at play. At the same time, you're going to have you know, big decisions to make around things like, you know, AI, machine learning and Internet of Things. So how do these 
these new um, paradigms work in a New Zealand context, given we're a primary producing nation. So Tech Futures was about saying, look, all these things are happening. There is no off button. You can't opt out. You can't say, oh, we're sitting at the bottom of the world. We're not going to be affected. Because actually, increasingly, our competition is online, and it's encroaching on us from geographically distant nations. But also, the knowledge that people need today to be able to, to turn the big traditional boats around is steeped in this idea of understanding what digital transformation means. When uh, we launched, we had no intention of actually developing a master's qualification because, again, it was felt like, do we really need people to come in for, in this case, a year-long master's, or would it be better if they could come in and do a bite-sized six weeks? You know, not, not so fluffy that it's like a conference and just go away for a few days, drink the Kool-Aid and come back to work, but something that people could take a few weeks out, but like a, you know, a mini-sabbatical. The problem was, as we get back to the same argument, people in the age group that we're talking to, who are typically over 35, still want a qualification. So we had to do a, a very quick pivot, and I was working very closely with NZQA in terms of qualifications, saying, look, you know, we really wanted to go this one way and have it sort of more like a credential, and what we would call a badging or a micro-credential, so that people didn't necessarily get a full qualification, but it was an equivalent to. And they were really excited about that as well. It didn't quite uh, pan out because there's still this very much a, you know, I'd like to get a master's and, and validate the things I know. We get that. What I do see, though, going forward now a couple more years, is that idea of credentials is coming very strong. There are more and more people who are saying, all I need is, you know, I need to be able to upskill. I need to be able to understand what happens next. I don't need to know necessarily how to do it in detail, but I certainly need to be sitting around the strategic boardroom or in board discussions and going, I get this. I understand what machine learning will do to not just our workforce, but I understand what it will do for productivity, understand from our competitive advantage to profitability. But I also am thinking about the people that might have impact and the types of skills we need to instill in them. So there is a really big uh, awareness right now, more than there has been uh, over the last few years, of where things are going, and I think you know our productivity has been nil for so long in this country. We've we're slipping down the innovation rankings very quickly. You know we're not able to grow. We don't have enough people with the right skill set. So we've got such a big misalignment between the job vacancies, which are numerous, bigger than ever, and the skills that people have. And so I'm really hoping that over the next few years there will be a an awakening, I guess, of people in the age group is sort of 35 to 60 going, okay, every few years or every couple of years, I'm going to take some time out to reskill, um, but also continue to learn all the time. And one of the examples I use r regularly with people is, you know, we have this uh, meetup community around New Zealand, and a lot of people have no idea what a meetup is, but this idea where it's a, a gathering of like-minded people to, meeting together on a topic which could be as complex as things like cognitive development or artificial intelligence, or as simplistic as you know, the, the workings of an agile working environment. And actually, they're getting together after hours and just you know, working through. These are great learning environments. They're rich, they're connected, they're people-based. They're often over a glass of wine. Um, people share so much knowledge. Like absolutely. If you're interested in an area, people will help you. Yeah. And these are professionals. And actually... We shouldn't just imagine that education comes in a sort of a box that has a formal qualification, but this richness and diversity of thought is a big part of learning. And so 
when you go to these meetups, what amazes me is I feel old. You know, I sort of look around and go, where are the people who are you know, over 40? Where are they in this group? So it's a phenomenon almost that young people have got the head around this because constant learning and curiosity and finding a tribe, we need to now instill that in the next generation who are sort of moving from that analog world and tradition in terms of skill sets and moving into this digital world so that we as a country can really embrace some of the changes we need to. Are you heartened by how, you know, what, and, and you know, it sounds because of the, the recognition and the success and, and the fact that, you know, things have um, gone well and the, the uh, media design school is a very important institution and, and the Mind Lab and Tech Futures Lab are both uh, really established and successful. It makes it seem almost like, you know, it was always going to be this way. But when you were starting um, starting all of these, they were completely new and completely um and, and new things are a really big challenge, you know. Has it has it been a hard a hard run? And are you heartened by how this is um, something that teachers have now embraced so much and has become part of the landscape? Look, I think if I knew at the beginning how hard this would be, I would never have done it. Um, there are there are so many obstacles in changing people's mindsets. There are there are you know formal organisations designed to protect things the way they were. There are people who are rewarded on still making more money and cutting costs, and so investment and new opportunities and innovation is not easy. There are also, you know, there is a lot of expectation of focused on the way we did things. So if, you, if you know, even if, wherever you look in companies, are often saying, well, we'll just, we'll just look at what we've got and we'll just do it better, instead of saying, what if we just start with a blank piece of paper? So everywhere I turn in education, of course, everybody has an opinion on. We've all experienced it. We've, you know, the majority of people know somebody who's currently in the system, um, whether they're a parent or a grandparent or that's their neighbour or they're on the PTA or the Board of Trustees. There's so much connection with education. And you know, we have 60,000 people employed directly as teachers in this country. Before you even look at tertiary and you start looking at those who are beyond the kind of the traditional teachers. So if I had known I would be spend so much of my time battling against the system, I think I probably would have walked away, actually. But once you're in it, it really is the most exciting sector to be in because it's such an impactful, meaningful, and actually rewarding sector. There, for every person who will stop me on the street saying, hey, I've just finished your t- my teacher program with you, my whole life has changed. I've got my mojo back. I'm loving teaching again. Or for the child who, who just the one who's quiet, who is sort of almost the introvert that sits in the corner of the classroom, suddenly showing a team of his peers how to make a, ro- a robot because they've been doing this at home for a long time and they're, you know, they're self-taught. Those moments, you, you can't beat them. There is nothing more important. But look, it's come with really significant sacrifice um, and risk. When I started the Mind Lab, um, I risked everything. I had to put my, sold my house. Uh, so my holiday home, which I know sounds incredibly white and privileged, but but I also realised that I had a lot to lose. I had young children, um, and I put everything on the line. And I remember maybe eight weeks in, I had eight staff, and I was watching the money just flitter away, and I had a big rental and a big facility. And I was thinking, what if people don't get this as quickly as I hope they do? And you have those moments where you think, how, how am I going to bounce back from this if I've got this all wrong? Thankfully... You know, I seem to find people who just keep championing, championing me on. But it does mean, I mean, I certainly didn't take a single dollar of income for at least a year and a half of, of starting. And each venture has perhaps a little bit less risk because your networks are strong and you, you're known that you've, people have more trust in you, the conversations are harder. 
uh, sorry, the conversations are easier because you've got history. Um, but I would never want to discourage someone for taking on a, you know, a really impactful, um, rewarding career if, because they're scared of, of, in the fear of failure. Because actually there is nothing I would go back and do differently. What advice do you give to people thinking about doing something entrepreneurial? I think the thing about entrepreneurism is there are two ways you look at it. There are those who are driven by a social purpose and social good. I think you're never going to be able to let that go. If you have this idea and you're 17, you're still going to have it 27 and you're still going to be unfulfilled at 37 if you've never done it. If you've got the sense of, I just need to do it, it's my calling. Those sorts of social entrepreneurs, I just want to say, just do it. You know, there is nothing more rewarding Take the risk. You'll find you'll, you'll definitely find people who will appear around you who want to keep keep going, who want to work alongside you, who will give their time and energy to be right there and championing with you. The other type of entrepreneurs who are those sort of looking to make a quick buck, you know, I want to make an app and it's going to sell it to Google. I think there is there is you know there's almost fiction around this type of entrepreneurship that um, you know good ideas have to solve big problems, whether it be the new app or whether it be a new piece of hardware, it still has to have an audience in the end who say who will make the decision to share their hard-earned cash because you, what you do is better than anything else. And I think that where we lose people is we often get great inventions that don't get commercialised because people can't let go, or we get people who commercialise bad ideas. So I'm always saying is find the thing that you in your heart feels like the right thing to do, that you'll be driven when you get up in the morning when it's... You know, things are bad, money's running out, things don't necessarily go to plan. What will get you through is passion. And so it's very hard to get passionate about something that you're designing just to make money. And I think that would be you know, my, my single point, point of advice. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for coming and sharing the story today. Francis Valentine, the CEO and founder at the Mind Lab and Tech Futures Lab. Uh, and yeah, if you do have young people in your lives, see if you can get them along to some Mind Lab things. They're wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Simon. Cheers. Thank you so much, Alice, for producing. Uh, and thank you very much for listening and having us along. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network... That was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.